Masahiro Sakurai may be best known for creating one of the most popular fighting series of all time with the Super Smash Bros. franchise, but his start with Nintendo was creating the pink puffball we know as Kirby. Kirby has starred in over 30 games in the last 30 years, and has taken a lot of different shapes, but mostly round. Kirby in the Forgotten Land is the first 3D platforming adventure, and he's swallowing traffic cones, cars, and light bulbs to celebrate. But, has Kirby struck gold again, or is it just a load of hot air? I'm Jordan Walkup, and here to help me answer that question are my brothers. I'm Jason Simmons. I'm Jackson Walkup. Let's get into it. Kirby and the Forgotten Land. This is one I've been excited about for a long time, because y'all know me. I'm a, I'm a big fan of our little pink boy. <laughs> Same. I guess before we really get into this particular game, we should talk a little bit about our experiences with good old Kirby. Jackson, why don't you kick us off, since you're, you know, a, a small and delicate child, <laughs> unlike us grizzled men. I will go ahead and say... I did not play this game this week. I played another game. But my experience with Kirby is uh, playing some on a Game Boy, not knowing what I was doing because I was like five. Playing a lot of the one where Kirby was yarn. Don't remember what it was called. Epic yarn. Makes sense. Yeah. And then uh, the one where you where you get mechs. Don't know what that one was called either. Uh, Gundam. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's basically all my oh and Super Smash Bros. He was my main for a while. Jason, what about you? Uh, I mean, I definitely played a lot of the Game Boy ones, specifically like Nightmare in Dreamland and The Amazing Mirror. I think I, I played a lot of those. I probably beat Nightmare in Dreamland like four or five times, uh, and I never beat Amazing Mirror because that game was confusing and I got lost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I get that. Um, but I, I mean, that. I've played a little bit of almost all of them throughout the years. I, you know, I played a little bit of Epic Yarn. I played, you know, the best Kirby game, Kirby Tilt and Tumble, the motion control one for the <laughs> Game Boy Color. I played a little bit of Planet Robobot, and I mean, I liked it, but I didn't own it, so I didn't play too much of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was, it was fine. <laughs> Uh, but that's just to say, like, I've definitely played a lot of Kirby throughout the years. I've played several different games on several different consoles. So I, I think I would be a Kirby veteran, if you will. I think I've earned that title uh, for my many heroic deeds in Dreamland. Uh, but how about you? I won't say I've played every single Kirby game, because there are a lot of weird ones out there, like Kirby's Block Ball and... Kirby's Dream Course and stuff that I don't even like recognize from those names, but I've definitely played all of like the main platforming Kirby games, starting with Dreamland on the original Game Boy, and I I've really really loved the series because it's always just it's very chill and puts a big emphasis on just like taking in the levels and the, and you know the the enemies and 
the cool powers and all that. Like it's never it's never a grueling game that pushes you really hard. But I've I actually think for me my favorites in the series were sort of like the Game Boy Advance through like 3DS era. Like there was about a 10 year time span where Kirby games were really really good in my opinion from like Nightmare and Dreamland through like Robobot. I I really loved just about all of those games. And uh, it's, you know, based on my experience, I knew that pretty much from its announcement, I was going to like uh, Forgotten Land. But it's actually been, it's had its ups and downs more than, more than I was anticipating. So if you're familiar with the Kirby games, you know that just about all of them are 2D platformers. Um, there have been some other weird ones where he has technically broken the second dimension, <laughs> like uh, Kirby Air Ride, which is a racing game, and uh, there's a Kirby Pinball game, and... Kirby Tilt and Tumble. Yeah, there's a motion-controlled game for the Game Boy. That's where you roll. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's It's gone some weird directions. And uh, this is the first time where Kirby has truly focused on that 3d platforming side of it and i think that for me personally and for a lot of people i think i was expecting sort of a bigger departure from how kirby works to come with that the game that keeps coming to mind for the three of us is mario odyssey and this is not mario odyssey for kirby (laughs) this is not that game (laughs) This is taking the style of Kirby, and instead of walking to the right, you walk forward. <laughs> That's... When I when I played the demo, it felt a lot like Mario 3D World. Yeah, I which mean, still if like we were gonna had a lot of the core it... concepts of how like a Mario level worked, but like in 3D. If we were going to compare yeah. it to a Mario game, it would definitely be more like that. Uh, Mario 3D World, you know, with very straightforward levels. Like, it's in 3D, but it's not open world or anything like that. Yeah, it still basically works like a traditional level of the game. Yeah. Yeah. It's the exact same concept of, like, the original Mario formula, or in this case, the original Kirby formula, but we just made it to where you can go in a full circle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You can move forward and backward, not just left and right. Um... But all that being said, there's still there's still some new stuff sort of on display here. And the biggest thing, sort of the advertising point of Kirby in the Forgotten Land, is a new viscerally upsetting power called Mouthful <laughs> Mode. Jason, do you want to sort of set up what that is and how it's used a little bit? Yeah, so basically, Kirby is famous for any enemy he comes across can, you know, fit in his mouth, he eats them, and sometimes he steals their powers, and other times he doesn't. I I don't know. He just eats them, yeah. I think. <laughs> <laughs> or he, like, turns them into a star somehow and spits them back out. Yeah. but Not really sure on the logistics of that one either. With mouthful mode, Kirby opens up his gaping maw as wide as it could possibly go. <laughs> And swallows things that are smaller than some of the enemies that he's eaten. And we've, like, even enemies in this game that you can eat. But for some reason, yeah. he can't He can't eat a car. <laughs> so I think it's because they're inanimate objects. 
I think his ability to like stretch himself indefinitely to swallow something only extends to living things. Which is terrifying, but I do think that's the distinction. That does make sense, because in I think in Robobot, there are, like, giant eels that you can eat. Yeah. And the eels just, like, keep coming. It's like a clown with a, uh, <laughs> with the, the handkerchiefs that just, it just keeps yeah. coming and coming. Like, yeah. and Kirby can eat that just fine, but you put a car in front of him, and Kirby's like, I have no idea what to do with this. You put a traffic yeah. cone in front of him, and he's like, No. <laughs> Yeah. This is too much for me. But but basically, instead of no, that doesn't make sense because you can eat you can eat things like King Dedede's hammer, and you get the hammer power up. That's true. <laughs> there may not be a lot of con- logical consistency with with mouthful mode. But basically, if Kirby tries to swallow cars or traffic cones or just giant rings for some reason. Instead of swallowing them, his body shapes to that object instead. It's... Incredible. <laughs> it is very fun. <laughs> like, like somehow this game managed to make playing as, like, a car and a light bulb and a vending machine kind of cool. <laughs> like, I really like the vending machine because it's super overpowered. Because you can spit the cans out. And then you can go pick the cans up to get health back. Yeah. But he already had hmm. those cans inside of him. Here, here's a list of everything Kirby can... I don't. I wouldn't say eat. The things he can mouthful in this game. There are. There is uh, Arch Mouth, which is where he takes like the arch of a gate and becomes like... A, it's like a horseshoe shape and he can fly. It's like a par- I thought of it like a paraglider. Yeah, yeah, that that's a good way to look at it. He basically turns into a paraglider. There's a car mouth where he eats a car and then can drive around the car. There is cone mouth where he eats a traffic cone. There is a light bulb mouth where he can light himself up. There is pipe mouth where he can roll around like a pipe. Yep. There is pipe mouth. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Pipe mouth is at the very least the second worst one. For Kirby, like, yeah. as an experience. Because <laughs> all you can yeah, do for... as a pipe is jump. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say it was the worst, but he can also eat filing cabinets. Yeah. <laughs> and when yeah. you eat a filing cabinet, you can't do anything. You can just knock yeah. it over. <laughs> yeah. What? Yep. Stor- uh, storage mouth is just, he can swallow it and then, like, knock it over. <laughs> he falls over on himself. Uh, there is scissor lift mouth, which is my personal favorite, where Kirby just becomes a scissor lift. There is stairs mouth, where you can move around sets of stairs. There is water balloon mouth, where you like can suck in like hundreds of gallons of water. That one's actually kind of a misnomer, isn't it? I would just call it water mouth. Yeah. Because yeah. there's no balloon involved. Kirby is the balloon. Yeah. But we don't say... Like, why is this one named by what Kirby is? <laughs> And all the other ones are named by what Kirby has in his mouth. Because, <laughs> yeah. like, when he eats a car, be. he's not called Car Cover Kirby. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Zero out of ten. <laughs> this game sucks. <laughs> but all this to say, mouthful mode is very, very weird. But I think is actually, like, genuinely pretty cool most of the time. Like, the way they incorporate things like the vending machines and the gliders and the light bulbs, like, to puzzles and platforming and stuff is, is like, genuinely pretty fun most of the time. 
I I actually enjoyed most of the mouthful stuff more than a lot of the regular Kirby ability things. <laughs> yeah, Kirby's abilities honestly kind of feel weird in 3D. Yeah. And there's like they've never been like super balanced. Like there have always been some that are better than others, but I think it's especially bad in this game where 3D combat has a little bit more to it. And some of the movesets are actually surprisingly complex, but then you also have some that are just not and just don't have that level of utility that others do. Like Jason, what would you say your favorite ability in the game is? Uh, the upgraded sword. Yeah, that that one's really cool. Maybe the drill, like my favorite mm. in all of its forms. Because uh, the drill, you can go underground, and if you draw circles, then you can make like big rocks shoot out and do a bunch of damage. It's pretty cool. And once you upgrade it, you can deal damage while you're still underground. And I think that that upgrade makes it like a powerhouse. <laughs> it also has the most puzzles kind of based around it. Yeah, there are some really cool ways they work the abilities into puzzle stuff. Like, like in my experience, I think my favorite ability to use is probably the um, the just the gun, <laughs> the ranger ability. And as it levels up, it like totally changes shape and style and stuff. My favorite for bosses most of the time is the ice ability because every every ability except ice has like a block and a dodge roll. And the block only blocks about half the damage, but if you dodge roll at the, at the last second, then you get, like, an opportunity attack and can hit them for a lot of damage quickly. Ice replaces all that with just a perfect block. It's just an unending, can-stop-all-damage block. And uh, it, it really trivializes most of the fights in the game. You know what? Let's get into it while we're here. This game, unlike previous Kirby games, has perfect dodging and, like, perfect blocking, if you're familiar with Breath of the Wild, uh, if you parry an attack or dodge out of the way of an attack at the last minute, it slows down time and will let you... It gives you an opening so you can attack the enemy. Uh, this Kirby game has that. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it doesn't really matter, but if you got to the final boss somehow without figuring it out, I don't know how you would beat them. Most of the bosses in this game are very, like traditional Kirby they have really big obvious attacks with you know big wind-ups and they cover you know really precise areas that final boss is out of nowhere which like that's a that's a mainstay in Kirby that the final boss is always something just totally insane but like like the last boss in this game goes hard like is very fast attacks cover huge areas like well once you figure it out it makes all the other bosses easier just knowing that you can do the perfect dodge sure but then like sure. There's a big armadillo boss near the end of the game, and I think that boss basically requires the perfect dodge. <laughs> yeah. And then the final boss does. It, it's just kind of weird because, like, There's it never, never a tutorial about it either. You on it. Yeah, you just you're expected yeah. to figure it out. It's also just weird for a for a mechanic like that to be in a game like this. So, which I know, like, the game has. It's called, like, Cool Breeze Mode or something like that, which is, like, an easy mode sort of, like, for little kids and things. This is going to be a game played by little kids, and I don't know what that last boss is like if you're playing on, like, the, the easier difficulty. I feel like it would still be kind of tough. Yeah, I, I don't know. I played it on the hard yeah. difficulty as well. Because yeah. uh, I'm, you know, a big, strong fella. <laughs> yeah. And I, I like yeah. my Kirby games. Like, I like my Madagascar movies <laughs> i have no idea where that's going <laughs> what wild mode 
I don't know. What? You can leave this What in. a pull. <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> Anyways, level design. I think this is actually one of the game's strongest suits, but I didn't appreciate it at first. Because every level has, you know, it's, it's all very straightforward, point A to point B, um, which is, you know, a mainstay for the Kirby games, other than Amazing Mirror, which, like Jason mentioned earlier, was a confusing mess. <laughs> and uh, it, they add these challenges in that the game doesn't tell you what they are. And they can be very normal things, beat these enemies, pick up these items. They can also be very obscure, like stand in this very specific spot of a level with like no indication you should go there otherwise. Yeah, like one of and, the challenges is, and this is a small spoiler, uh, for one secret challenge that'll get you one Waddle Dee in one level near the end of the game. It's uh, take a nap near the hidden pool. Which means yeah. not only do you have to already find the hidden pool, you also specifically need to eat one of the sleep enemies there <laughs> so you fall asleep. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's just kind of weird. Yeah. I, when I first started the game, I thought that those challenges were going to be sort of the game's saving grace. Like, they were going to add the extra level that the, the game needed to stay interesting. I realized by about world two, like halfway through world two, that those challenges actually really get in the way of, of taking in the levels themselves. Once I stopped looking like in every corner of the level for those hidden things, I started to really appreciate not just the level design, but the game as a whole. And I think a big part of that is because the levels are really interesting. Like they did a really good job of creating this like lost and forgotten city and then turning that into the backdrop for a game that's very like happy-go-lucky, like Kirby is. Like I, I really like the level design, both from a like a physical design standpoint, but also like an aesthetic level. Uh, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, I don't necessarily think it was so much the ability, like looking for the uh, the hidden stuff in every level that was detracting. I think the first two worlds are just significantly more boring than the rest of the game. <laughs> That that's also a big part of it, for sure. Because the first world's very traditional Kirby. The second is I mean, just traditional Kirby, but with some water. <laughs> and then it's with the third world things start to go a little bit crazier. Like you start to see a little bit more variety in what you're doing and where you're going. The first world is all like exploring abandoned like residential areas, I guess. I don't know, like like a mall <laughs> and, and stuff like that. And the second one is like an oceanside resort. And the third one's where it kind of actually gets interesting because like there's some cool levels in there. There's one that's like a haunted, uh, I don't know exactly what to call it. It's like a haunted maze, I guess, is what they're going for. And it's like very dark. It uses the the light bulb power a lot, and there are ghost enemies that are introduced in that level. I just think stuff like that's kind of more interesting than an abandoned mall. Because <laughs> like, if I want to go to an abandoned mall, I could just go to, uh, you know, I could just take like a forty five minute drive, I guess, and find one. <laughs> Kirby has this. <laughs> Kirby does this thing. Like every Kirby game has this for some reason, where. And it's an intentional design choice, and I really appreciate it now. But 
every Kirby game starts with you in these very, like, cutesy, funny, kind of ridiculous settings. Like, everything's very exaggerated, bright colors, the enemies are kind of goofy looking. And your first boss is like a tree, or in this case, a big monkey. And it's that for like 80% of the game. And then the last 20% of every Kirby game is just straight up the stuff of nightmares. And the last like world or two worlds or whatever of almost every Kirby game is just so much darker and creepier than everything before it. And I think this game actually does that better in, than like anything previously because the cutoff is so direct. <laughs> like, like everything up to like the end of the game is like fine, fine, fine. And then you go to a level called the waste from where life began. <laughs> what? Like, yeah, it's so weird. Just out of the blue. The last two worlds are on a completely different island. Or I, I say worlds, but like the last two areas that you explore are on a completely different island from the first four. And the first one is a desert, and the second one is like the wastelands around a volcano. <laughs> and it's just the desert one has some interesting worlds. Like there's one that's in a in a desert oasis, but the rest of the desert is kind of more like drab and kind of like a little oppressive, almost. Like, you can clearly see that there used to be things here, but not only has it been abandoned, it's also been, like, completely taken over by the sand from the desert. Like, there's nothing here anymore. It's just wasteland. And then you get to the volcano areas. There are, like, enemy bases all over the place, basically. (laughs) And, like, meteors constantly falling. I guess they're supposed to be lava rocks from the volcano. Um, Yeah. And, like, the level is, like, actively falling apart around you as you're exploring it. It's just so different from what the, the rest of the game is like. It, it has a completely different atmosphere. Very memorable level is... One of the last ones is in, like, a factory in this volcano area. So you're still dealing with, like, all the lava and stuff like that. And then on top of that, it's, like, a foundry, I guess. It's just weirdly industrial it goes completely against the aesthetic of what the rest of the game is setting up with all this like colorful cute stuff and then the end is oppressive like everything is it's it's gray it's gray and black and that's it (laughs) and then there's also red lava still but like everything colorful is gone or has been like colored over even the enemies once you get to this point you stop seeing them. Uh, like early on, there are dog enemies, and they're mostly like brown. Yeah, uh, like and brown like and bright tan. orange or orange. Yeah, yeah, I'm colorblind, so tan orange <laughs> kind of all falls together. But near the end, yeah. when you run into the same enemies, they're almost always gray and black. Like everything. And this isn't to say this is like just a bad thing. Like this is like a very cool design choice. A lot of the time, it's just like it's so weird. Like it comes out of nowhere. I mean, for the most part, it works, but it's just. It's a lot to take in. <laughs> and it's, I mean, this isn't a super long game to begin with, but to still like for the first like 10 or 12 hours to be one thing and then like the last three to five to be something totally different is just, it's very weird. Very pretty though. Yes. I think the game looks great. It does have some frame rate issues and it does this thing where enemies that are far away that aren't in like the main rendering distance, like 
I guess that's just also a very low frame rate, but it's just, it's very jarring. But for the most part, I think the game looks very, very good. Like, it's a very pretty game. A lot of unique environments to see. They do a really good job with the backgrounds always have interesting design. It's not just, you know, set up for good level design. It's actually, like, the world around it's interesting as well. Yeah, and none of the levels are just, like, repeats of an earlier level. Or if they are, uh, because there's one level in particular... You know, we mentioned the mall level in the the beginning. There's another mall level near the end. Uh, but instead of being based around the front-facing side of the mall, you know, where, like, where customers are and all the shop fronts are and everything's bright and colorful, it's more based around the employee areas behind. And you kind of transition between these two areas back and forth as you're trying to get through the mall. And it's very cool because... Like, like I mentioned, like when you're in the front areas, it's, you know, bright, colorful animals. And when you're in the back areas, it's very drab. And like, there's also ghost enemies back there. It's just a really nice, uh, like, change of pace. I can't think of the word I wanted to use. It's an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah. For sure. And it's like they, they're exploring a very similar idea, but just from a completely different angle that kind of changes how you see everything. Also, I, I won't get into spoilers. Um, the ending of this game is phenomenal. <laughs> it's it's so crazy and campy, and it's ever it's everything that Kirby should be. <laughs> and also, like I said, things go sort of a, a pretty dark direction. I think it's one of the cooler, not just bosses, but like boss plots and backstories and what it's setting up and all that. Like, I think this is definitely one of the better games for the you know, lore and world building and all that, which generally takes a backseat in other Kirby games. While we're talking about, like, the levels still a little bit, I do want to talk about the music in this game, because uh, it's incredible. <laughs> it, it hits on a lot of those same, like, familiar Kirby themes, but like I mentioned with a lot of the levels in the back half of the game, or I guess even just the back third of the game, being, you know, darker and more industrial, it does the same thing with the music. It goes two ways with that. Sometimes it's like kind of like eerie and depressing music, and sometimes it's just hard rock, and that's awesome. <laughs> but what's really cool about you know the eerie, depressing music and the hard rock is that it is like a lot of the same themes and stuff that you hear in the bright, colorful yeah. music. And like I mean, most of the characters like Kirby, DDD, Meta Knight, they all have their own themes, and they're back, but they've been totally redone, and they're they've been redone multiple times for the different parts of the game. Meta Knight's new theme is incredible, and I love it. Highly recommend. You can just check it out. If you're not going to play the game, at least listen to it, because it's a very good theme. You know, we, we did forget to mention, with the abilities, like, upgrading them, as well as, like, oh, upgrading yeah. Waddle Dee Town and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's something we definitely need to get into. There are sort of two main ways you progress in the game, or that you sort of, like, make yourself better, I guess you could say. And one is through a new system where you can now upgrade the abilities. Uh, each one has three or four levels that you find in on scrolls hidden throughout the other levels. And some of those upgrades are pretty significant. Like, they fundamentally change how abilities work, or they give, you know, entirely new powers on top of what you can already do. Yeah. Jason mentioned before a, a pretty big one with the, the digger is... You know, at first it just goes underground and can pop back up somewhere else. But by its final level, it has like a buzzsaw on top of it that's above ground. So Kirby's underground can't be hit by anything, but can drive around this buzzsaw 
that's like running over things and he can then shoot up from the ground and fire stuff in different directions and it really expands upon the abilities in some pretty cool ways yeah one one in particular that's really cool to me is there's the crash ability that returns from plenty of previous games where it's just one big explosion that will kill all the enemies on screen or deal a lot of damage if you use it on a boss uh it has an upgrade now called time crash i think or maybe time bomb i'm not exactly sure what it is but when you use it it freezes all the enemies around you and then it puts up a field around you that if you run into an enemy while that field's still active it extends the amount of time that time is frozen and it kills that enemy and you can just keep running into enemies with this ability and time will stay frozen you can it's it's just a very cool ability that is kind of like a natural progression of the ability, but at the same time, it's like insane. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like they go some really weird directions with these. Um, You also mentioned this one a little bit earlier, but the sword is a really cool one. Like the sword is a Kirby staple. It's been in every game that Kirby has had copy abilities. And it starts where it's just regular sword. And then its second form is like what I describe as being like a monster hunter like loadout. He has this like big bulky armor and a giant spiked shield and the sword is now like three times as tall as Kirby is. And you would think like the next evolution after that would of course be bigger armor, bigger sword. But no, (laughs) the third evolution is just Meta Knight. You get Meta Knight's mask and wings and his sword and it works totally different than the level two one. It's now like it when you're at full health, it can like shoot lasers and like can do these crazy spin attacks and... Like, each level is not just an evolution of the previous one. A lot of the time, it's something 100% different, just, like, based around the same theme. I, I do think that of of the two sort of main new mechanics for this game, the mouthful mode and the uh, ability upgrading, I think mouthful mode's probably limited to just this game. I would be shocked if it's back in, its, in this capacity in the future. I'm almost sure that ability upgrading is going to be a staple from here on out. Well, ability upgrading... I think it's already uh, sort of existed before. Yeah. Never quite to this capacity. They've done some other stuff with the abilities. Like there was one game where you could like get two at once and they combine into different things. And there was one, I think, where if you like could somehow manage to swallow two of the same enemy at the same time, then you got like a bigger, better version of it. But I think this is the first time that the series has ever had like a true upgrade system where you can just buy better versions of abilities. And I hope that that's something that sticks around because the fully upgraded ones are very, very cool. And I think it's made better by the fact that you have to earn them and you have to use their, you know, worst versions first. Something I think they should bring back and might just be in this game and I haven't gotten to it yet is dying Kirby. I miss that. I liked being able to be like an orange Kirby. I feel like that was in a lot of the DS games, like at least, or I meant Game Boy games. Like it was in at least two or three of them, but then... They just dropped it for some reason. And again, like you said, it could be in this one. I just, I haven't gotten it yet. I still have, like, I haven't done all the side content in the last two worlds, and I still have, like, five more levels of, of like, the post-game thing to do. So there's still plenty more to see. I think I'm at, like, 72% or something on, like, the completion for the full game. So, Jason, give us your final thoughts on Kirby and the Forgotten Land. I mean, I I do think Kirby and the Forgotten Land is a really good game. I think it kind of expands upon what we've seen in a lot of the previous Kirby games and bringing it into 3D kind of modernizes it in a big way. (laughs) That said, I I am a little disappointed 
that I, I think when this was announced, I and probably most people expected something a little bit bigger, more akin to what we saw with like Breath of the Wild or Super Mario Odyssey, where it took the formulas for those games and expanded on them in just about every possible direction. <laughs> I mean, with Breath of the Wild, you know, making it open world and making the world so full and like lived in, like kind of turning it into more of an RPG world than just a Zelda world, as weird as that sounds. <laughs> And Super Mario Odyssey, you know, having these hub worlds that had a million different things that you needed to do in them before the world was actually complete. I think Kirby sticking with its, you know, pretty standard A to B level design is a little boring in comparison. Like, I do think that they nailed it in terms of what they were trying to do, which is, you know, just making Kirby 3D more or less. Like, I I think that... The levels that they created are really interesting, and there is kind of a lot kind of crammed into each of these levels. There's a lot to explore. They're beautiful. But I was hoping for something really similar to Super Mario Odyssey. And to me, it does feel like Super Mario Odyssey is probably the best Kirby game we've ever gotten. (laughs) So it's kind of hard to talk about, you know, when, when you're thinking of it like that. I think that this is one of the one of I, it's at least one of the best Kirby games that we've ever gotten. So if you like Kirby games, like you're going to like this one. <laughs> it's it's not yeah. it's not missing anything that makes a Kirby game great. It's just kind of missing that last piece that I was really expecting for Kirby's first big release on the Nintendo Switch. Because, I mean, it it does feel like everyone else is kind of reinventing themselves on the Switch. You know, with uh, Pokemon Arceus, Breath of the Wild, Super Mario Odyssey. Kirby is a lot, in a lot of ways, just more of the same. Yeah. Yeah, I'd kind of like to see the the stuff expanded upon and kind of expanded outwards (laughs) with whatever Kirby's next big game is. Uh, But overall, I really did like it. How about you? I mean, I, I think I, I, I share a lot of the same sentiments. I mean, I think that this is a very, very good game in and of itself, but it's not even so much that, you know, I was hoping this was going to be something with the scale of Mario Odyssey, and it's just not as much as, even if this game is great, I think Kirby deserves that level of detail and depth and, you know, the the whole world that Mario Odyssey created. Like, I think this is a character with so much history that's been at the center of so many great games and lends itself to that environment really, really well. Like I would, I would really, really love to see a game like Mario Odyssey with Kirby sometime in the future. And while this game, I think is actually, once I sort of came to grips with what this game is, I think it's actually even better than I was anticipating. But at the end of the day, you know, I don't know that like the reason Kirby always has to have a gimmick is because the core concept is great, but it's not enough. And I don't just want to see them keep making more and more gimmicks in future Kirby games. I want them to just make like a Kirby game that can stand the test of, you know, the the Odysseys and the Breath of the Wilds of the world on its own right. Because I think it's definitely possible. And I think that 
the the dev team they have on the Kirby games is phenomenal. So like just give them the time and the budget they need to make Kirby Odyssey of the Wild or whatever it needs to be. Also, actually release the soundtrack for this one, Nintendo. You can't keep making these games with incredible soundtracks and then giving me no way to listen to them legally. Okay, well, that's a lot of Kirby talk, and we have a whole other game we got to get into. So, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back with something else. Known for its comic book stylings, aggressive combat, and tongue-in-cheek sense of humor, the Borderlands franchise is a cult classic, but it gave way to one of the biggest genres in gaming history, the looter shooter. Tiny Tina's Wonderlands is a reimagining of the franchise, replacing the sci-fi roots of the originals with high fantasy and loads of Dungeons and Dragons references. With games like Destiny taking up a tremendous part of the gaming climate, is there still room for the Borderlands franchise? Let's find out. Tiny Tina. I'm a big fan, but my history with the Borderlands franchise is a little bit more complicated than that. So, for me personally, I have been playing these games since just a few months after the first one launched. And I think that Borderlands 2 is probably my most played video game of all time. If I had to guess, it would probably be that one. But Borderlands 3 was not not my jam. Like, I still spent time with it, but I feel like it was just trying to recapture nostalgia of my time with Borderlands 2, and that was really all I was trying to get out of it. Jason, what's your experience with the whole Borderlands world? I remember playing quite a bit of the first one and enjoying it, but never really getting into it. Like, I don't think I beat the first game until PC re-release. The three of us played it, like, all the way through in its entirety over the course of, like, three or four days on a vacation probably two or three years ago now. And that was, I think that was the first time we ever finished it together. Yeah. For sure. I remember Borderlands 2 being like really big when it came out. I think that was the first midnight release I ever went to. And then I had school the next day, but I was coincidentally sick that day. (laughs) So I did get to play it the day that it came out. And that was kind of cool. But even so, like, I've never really been into playing Borderlands by myself, I think is the big thing. Like, I've, I've always played them mostly with Jordan. <laughs> I, I played the first one a little bit with, like, friends in high school. Because somehow everybody ended up with Borderlands, even though, like, I didn't know anybody that was crazy about it. Yeah. I just knew that everybody had a copy. So, I, I mean, that's really... A, I played Borderlands the pre-sequel a lot with Jordan as well. Um, I still barely played Borderlands 3. It, it just, I feel like I fell off Borderlands a lot more than you guys ever did. <laughs> yeah. I spent a lot of time with the Borderlands series, mostly over like the past three years. Like I've, I, I think the first one I actually beat was Tales from the Borderlands. Like I've, I've played all of them. I've beat all of them at least once, a few more than others. Like Borderlands was a game I always knew because you guys had played it, but wasn't really until like, Whenever they did the like the remaster before three, whenever that was released, that was like the first time I really got into the series. Good times. Remember when you couldn't melee without accidentally marking other people's stuff as trash? <laughs> uh, this game is 
there this series is one that is i i think borderlands 2 is the only good release that, that they've had like every other game that they've put out has been so buggy at launch including the remaster of borderlands 1 which came out yeah. like 10 years after the original game did and it still didn't run well it didn't help that we were also playing it on like a 20 inch tv yeah. you know on three players split screen yeah yeah <laughs> But all this to say, like, we've played a lot of the Borderlands series, mostly together. Like, I have played so much of Borderlands 2. There are six characters, and I've beaten the game and New Game Plus as all six characters. Some of them multiple times. It's like, that's like, I guess, like, my comfort game. I guess if you were to, like, describe it as something. Like, that's the game I go to when I just want to, like, chill. (laughs) Not really pay attention to it. And... Not being able to pay attention to it is what I look for in these games. And that's why Borderlands 3 was such a disappointment. So Jackson, why don't you set us up about what this game is and how it's different from Borderlands 3 specifically. So Wonderlands is mostly different in the fact that it's a Dungeon & Dragon style game. This game is obviously still using the same systems as Borderlands 3. The best way to describe it is just, like, how pre-sequel feels to Borderlands 2. Just, you know, they put D&D on there instead of the moon. (laughs) What makes this game so different from every other game in the franchise is this one is blue. Yeah. (laughs) There are still some, like, major differences. A big thing with previous Borderlands games is there's, at launch at least, uh, four distinct different classes to choose from. While in this game, well, not just classes, but, like, characters. In this game, it's one character, the newbie. (laughs) That seems like a weird way to say that. You don't play as a fixed character. You make your own character this time, and then you pick one of six classes. Yeah, and then you pick one of six classes, and eventually you even get to have a second class. It's a lot more mix and match than the previous ones, though. I'll have some st- stuff to go into about the multi-class system later. I'll I'll save that for later, though. Yeah, I'll save that as well. <laughs> yeah, because I've got some big issues with that. The way I see it, because I've talked to Jordan about this before, I feel like Wonderlands was originally planned as a DLC for Borderlands 3, but eventually they just got, like, really into it and just decided, like, what if we made this its own thing? Because it does have a few clear distinctions, like the somewhat we- rework of a class system. Another big thing, there are now spells, there is now magic. Those are kind of the same thing. Um, yeah, grenades have been replaced with spells. They function very similarly to how grenades worked in the Borderlands games, where like yeah. your magic can be any range of different things, and it, it's wildly different between different types biggest difference i would say is just that it's they're on on cooldown instead of being a limited resource which i think is actually pretty smart because like there was a lot of times in previous borderland games i just wouldn't use my grenades because like you know i'd use them all in a boss and then not have them any other time yeah and this game definitely incentivizes it like it has a whole class that's almost wholly based around always having your spell ready yeah one of the classes action skill is just like a second you get spell. a second spell. Yeah, that's the one I'm using. And yeah. I'm it's like every 4 or 5 seconds I can use another spell. 
Very different from how you use grenades. Speaking of the cooldown for spells, another big change that I've seen is like, in previous Borderlands games, things weren't, nothing was on like a high cooldown or anything, but like, they were definitely like middle of the road level. All the cooldowns in this are significantly lower than previous games. Like, this game, Wonderlands really incentivizes using your abilities and stuff, like, pretty much whenever they're available. Yeah, and that's, in my opinion, that's really the biggest difference. It's not the setting, mm-hmm. it's not the story, it's not the style. It's the fact that the guns still are sort of similar to Borderlands 3 in terms of their form and function. But on top of that, like like with my character, I'm throwing out what is basically Thor's hammer every several seconds. And I'm casting spells in like every couple of seconds. And uh, they, they reworked melee, so it's a lot more useful now. So like I'm running at things with an axe instead of just standing back and shooting. It's a lot more in your face, and there's a lot more happening at any moment. Not just more enemies and like more damage, but you have a lot more options, and you can use them mm-hmm. much more aggressively. I was going to say something, but as soon as you finished talking, I completely forgot what it was. <laughs> Welcome to podcasting. <laughs> you talked a little bit about it before. You no longer have three fixed skill trees based on your character. You now pick your class, which has one skill tree... And then about a third to halfway through the story, you get a second class and gives you a second uh, skill tree. That's something that I think is sort of... Borderlands fans don't know what to make of it. Like, some really, really like it, and some really, really don't. I I do not like it. Because, one, you're going to have less skill trees than you would in any other Borderlands games, where you're going to always have three. Well, I think having, like, a second class is cool, there's there's issues with it. Like, like I just said, you're only limited to two skill trees, unlike previous Borderlands games. My biggest problem, though, is each skill tree has two action skills you can choose from. But you can only ever have one action skill equipped at a time. So when you get that second skill tree, like, you may just not even use any of the action skills. <laughs> You still get the passive buffs from the new skill tree. Like, you get you get to have one for each. But, I don't know. I feel like not being able to use... Not being able to have, like, at least two action skills equipped is kind of a letdown. Because even in Borderlands 3, uh, Zane, you could have two action skills equipped. You had to get rid of your grenade, but, like, I think they could work in having your grenade and still having two action skills. I, I, I kind of like having just the one skill tree. Honestly, I think part of the, I mean, you have the double class or the multi-classing in this game. So it's not like you're only locked to one skill tree. Like you can have a second one still. And you still, you have more options for what that second skill tree is going to be than you do with just the single skill tree. The way I played it was I started with a class called the Berserker. (laughs) This is a... Uh, it's like a really aggressive melee-centric ice build. Like, all the abilities are based around ice. And, you know, I was I was really liking the class. I was pretty happy with the skills that I had access to, except for the action skill itself. Both of the action skills, one was way too situational, the other was just kind of bland. Like, it was like one really strong attack, and that was it. So, when I multiclassed, I was, most of the skill points I was spending were still going into my Berserker skill tree but i multi-classed with like the wyvern lord or something to that effect and that 
one, gave me the passive ability of, I just have a dragon that follows me around now, which is very cool. And two, it had much better action skills. So, like, I think I only put, like, 11 of my 50 or whatever skill points into that second skill tree. But I still think it opened up so many doors because, like, my first class got a lot of really cool buffs the second that my action skill ended. And this new class had action skills that were much faster and to be used much more frequently. So it had a lot of synergy, even though I wasn't using a lot of the actual skills from that skill tree. So, like, I ended up with a build I was really, really happy with, even if it was still, like, 80% from the class I started with. And I think that there's a lot of different ways you can shift that to be better or worse, depending on which two skill trees you happen to pick. Like, I feel like I just got two that have really good synergy, and I haven't really experimented with others to know better, but, like, I could definitely see there being ones that don't work as well together. It, it also kind of feels like you're making one big decision instead of a lot of really tiny decisions. Because you don't need to... You're, you're not picking your, your skill trees based off what the bottom thing is. <laughs> You're picking your skill tree based off what the top thing is. Like it kind of flips a lot of it upside down. And I think yeah. that I think it's kind of interesting. Like in previous Borderlands games, you know, I pick the character that I think sort of resonate with the most, and then they have three skill trees, but I pretty much know that at least for the first twenty some levels, I'm gonna stay in the same skill tree because that skill at the bottom is what you're working towards. Because it's always something really big and important. In this game, at least of the two skill trees I, I've used, neither one at the bottom is like a game changer. Like, they're both cool, but they're not like... They weren't enough for like I needed to build my whole thing around those. The best skills I have for both classes are in like the top row or two of each one. Yeah, and plus you can pick up like very different passives. I think that's a big thing. It, it feels like the passives in this game matter a lot more because sure. you only have sure. a single skill tree. So it's a lot easier to balance one skill tree versus three. And each of the six classes have, a, have Jackson alluded to it a little bit earlier, they have what it's called the class feat, F-E-A-T, <laughs> which is something that always takes effect for that class. Sometimes it's really big and obvious things, like I have a dragon that follows me. <laughs> but sometimes it's a little more, it's a little more number-centric. Like for my starting class... It's for like 10 seconds after my action skill ends, all of my attacks do ice damage and everything is like a little bit faster and my cooldowns are a little bit shorter and like I can build out ways, like almost all the skill trees in that class have to do with the, that 10 second window after you use an action skill. Like you can increase the duration of it or you can increase how much ice damage it is or it can give you other passive effects while it's active. Like it's all sort of built back around that fact. And I think that those six feats play a much bigger role than I would have expected going into the game. Wonderlands definitely fixes a good bit of the problems three had, but there's still just too much loot, which is a weird thing to say about a looter shooter. You want loot, but like I'm only on like the sixth story mission and I'm level 19 and I'm already at the point where like the only weapons that matter are purple weapons. I have, I want to complain about the weapons at the beginning of the game because they all suck and they're not fun to use. Yeah. You have to get, 
you have to play for several hours before you start getting guns that are like that have a decent fire rate and do decent damage. For the most part, almost every gun in the first couple hours has an abysmal fire rate. And then sometimes you'll find one that does good damage, but most of the time not. I feel like a lot of that also contributes to the fact that pretty much every single skill tree is going to have some sort of ability that will up your damage output in some way. Mm-hmm. So things are just automatically like weak because they know that later on they're going to be powerful. But yeah. like... I don't know, I feel like that just kind of ruins the early game. Like, I think they should just, like... I I feel like... I don't know. I don't really know, like, what a good system would be instead of that. But, like, I feel like the other Borderlands games, minus three, didn't have that problem. Well, I think it's because they wanted there to be this sort of fantasy hook to the weapons. And that manifests as your first couple of weapons are bow adjacent like they still fire like a pistol but they fire arrows with like a lot of drop and it's not until you're pretty late in the game that you can find weapons that fire arrows like quickly and without a lot of drop and when you're already pretty weak to begin with and you don't have a lot of options the beginning is definitely the weakest part of the game the more i've played it the crazier combat has gotten and the more i've more i've enjoyed it but it was sort of a slog in the beginning where the weapons aren't great, the spells are kind of samey, and plus they still have pretty long cooldowns at that point. And it's just, I don't know, the beginning just isn't great. It, it doesn't set itself up well, and I think it takes a little bit too long to, to really get going. But I think once it gets going, I, I really enjoyed this game. I think it was significantly better than 3. And I think that Borderlands as a franchise can take a lot from this game and improve the main, main series, mm-hmm. even if they don't go back to this fantasy setting for a while. Magic weapons in this game are kind of weird. Magic shotguns don't fire like shotguns. They fire like an arc of energy in like a straight line in front of you. And that's one of those things where situational at best in the beginning, but the damage scaling isn't great. But like later on, being able to shoot out a blast that like covers a whole area like that is essential. Like does ton of damage, clears out mobs crazy fast, like... It takes a really weird turn. Several of the weapons do, honestly. Like, I think pistols and SMGs start off kind of rough. Pistols get a lot better. SMGs still kind of eh. But, like, like everything everything goes in weird directions as you get further in. I'd still just prefer Sledge's shotgun. I love that guy. There actually aren't a lot of returning weapons, which is, or at least not from what I've played. I also, I, I've only found, like, maybe three or four legendary weapons. I've found several, like, class mods and shields and things. But I don't know if there just are less legendary weapons or if they just spawn more as you progress. Because the game has a post-game progression system like it really has two. And they both sort of affect loot drops. Because when you hit max level, which actually happens fairly early in the game, you unlock a second way to progress your character called your myth ranks. And you level up your myth rank much faster than your traditional level, but the perks are much smaller you'll get like a one percent buff to gun damage or like you know one stat will go up by, by one point like it's nothing wild but like it's there and both both that and this other system called your chaos rank as those go up so do your drop rates and also you can find some items in the game that boost drop rates as well but i'm guessing that you know once i go far enough with this it'll probably be like borderlands 3 where legendaries are dropping like crazy but right now it's it's much more contained. 
than it was in the previous games. Now, again, speaking of comparing this game to Borderlands 3, oh boy, those technical issues. Yeah, especially in multiplayer. It's rough. (laughs) Yeah, so something that affects um, the game at all times, whether you're in multiplayer or not, is sometimes when you start the game, your quest menu will not work. You will not be able to see any of your quests. So you'll just have to do whichever quest you have active, whether you want to do it or not. And like, I don't know when, like eventually it fixes itself, but like, I don't know when that point is. I don't know if it's like just randomly or like whenever you finish a quest and your quest bar updates. I don't know, but it's really annoying when I randomly have to do a mission for Claptrap, even though I'd prefer not to. (laughs) Some other technical issues. There is severe frame rate uh, problems with this game. It does seem to be area dependent because a few of the areas I've been in have been fine, but there's one area that's like a mushroom jungle where I experienced tons of technical issues. There was frame rate drops. There was stuttering. uh, I had the game crash once. It was, Aliasing yeah. is pretty rough in certain areas, especially if you're doing split screen. Yeah, hey, is it as bad as uh, Pokemon Legends Arceus? Oh no, 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 no! Nothing will be as bad as a Switch game. <laughs> now this is, I mean, this is still bad, but it's not. It's it's bad within the parameters of a PS5 game. <laughs> um, it's the biggest thing is just that everything's inconsistent. Like, none of the, you can, like, there are bugs and you can never count on them. Like, just because an area sometimes has frame rate issues doesn't mean it will the next time you go there. And just because somewhere, just because an area has worked right the past seven times doesn't mean it's going to the eighth. Like, there's just, uh, like, you don't know what you're getting into sometimes. And I will say, they have put out some patches since launch that has helped out a lot. But there are definitely still some bugs in there. The quest log thing is still a problem, and I've done all the quests. Like I don't even have a need for it anymore, and it's still annoying that like sometimes I'll just scroll past the page and just everything is blank. <laughs> Sorry, how many hours do you have in this game? Uh, probably about twenty, if I had to guess. Oh, it's that short. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's only, I believe it's ten main story missions and fifty side missions. Hey, Jackson, I believe you. When you said that you think that it was originally a DLC, I didn't realize it was that short. Borderlands 2 has like 60 main story missions, doesn't it? Not that many, but they're also like longer missions. Right, and they're like multi-tier things. I mean, the missions yeah. like that in, in this are like that in this game as well. Like a story mission has several steps to it, but... Oh, you're right. I looked it up. Borderlands 2 has 19 story missions. Yeah, I think 3 has like 20-some. I'm looking at howlongtobeat.com right now. And it says the main story of Wonderlands is 12 hours. The main plus extra, which is, I guess is probably what you would call what I've played, is 19 and a half hours. And then the completionist is 32 and a half. The completionist for Borderlands 2 is 125 hours. I'm thinking that completionist is probably beating it with every class or something like that. And doing all the side missions with one class or something. I don't want future Borderlands to be this short, but I do think they should be shorter I personally do not like how long two and three were. I feel like I feel like one had like a good length, but a lot of that game was just like repetitive, boring. <laughs> one feels yeah. longer than two. Yeah. yeah, just because a lot of its stuff is like boring and repetitive, but it's like it's really a lot shorter. And like I think the length is good. It's just you know all that's boring. But like Borderlands two and three like are really long like 
talking like 50 or so hours to beat. And like, I don't think future games need to be as short as Wonderlands, but I would like to see like a middle ground. I think it depends. I think Wonderlands is a really good length for what it is. I think it makes good use of its time and it doesn't overstay its welcome and it sets up what it needs to set up. If future Borderlands games want to go that route and just rely more on extra content for more time, I'm fine with that. I just think that whatever comes needs to make good use of its time. Let's talk a little bit about the story and the characters. It's certainly, it you know, it's not the focus. The story and characters have never been a focus of anything Borderlands. Um, I do think that this is probably the best they've handled it in the franchise, at least of the base games. I think Borderlands 2 had some phenomenal DLCs. But I actually really, really like the four like main characters of this game. And I think that that was... Having this traveling party with you, I think, is much, much better than some of the really grating stuff you'd have to go through with some of the previous games. Yeah, they toned down Tiny Tina and made her significantly less annoying. Because I feel like if this game was actually like Borderlands 2 Tiny Tina with you the whole time, it oh, would God. be insufferable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's also much less claptrap. I think he's just in like one like like He's in side... two quest lines, yeah. but they're only side content. That was the best change to the whole game. <laughs> yeah. There's also this like weirdly big cast in it this time. Because you really only have four major characters. You have Tiny Tina as your dungeon master, who's played by Ashley Birch, who is incredible as always. But you also have uh, the Dragon Master, played by Will Arnett, who is like the main antagonist, and you're sort of back and forth with the entire game. That's and then the you Dragon have... Lord. Sorry. And the Dragon Lord certainly doesn't hit like Handsome Jack level of like great villain writing, but I think he's still like definitely one of the more compelling villains of the series. It's also cool you have two traveling companions. They play they they essentially are the other two players in your game because this is a tabletop RPG inside of a video game. And uh, you have Fret who is a robot voiced by Wanda Sykes and Valentine Valentino. Uh, who, Val, Valentino, maybe Valentine, but I don't think it's Valentino. <laughs> but uh regardless, he is voiced by Andy Samberg. Like, banter between Fret and Valentine is, is actually pretty good most of the time. Because you have Fret, who is this very, like, rule-oriented, like, wants everything to be in the parameters of the game. And then you have Valentine, who just, like, wants to set up doing cool over-the-top things. And it's actually, like pretty reflective of what D&D is like in my experience. And maybe that's a bias for me personally, but like I actually thought it was it was pretty entertaining for the most part. And, you know, sometimes they still say some cheesy jokes and stuff cuz this is a Borderlands game and they can't not do that. But it's for the most part I think it's like the best that the ongoing banter in the game has been. Yeah. Not sure how it'll hold up in future replays, but I liked it better than most for the first time through. It's definitely a star-studded cast, which is not what you'd expect from Borderlands. Because <laughs> in the previous game, it was like, it's primarily no names, and then also some people that work there. <laughs> yeah. Like, Claptrap, I'm pretty sure, was voiced by... I hope it's not Randy Pitchford. I don't like him. <laughs> totally Biased Media Podcast would like to take this moment to say that we don't we don't like Randy Pitchford. 
<laughs> yeah. We like Borderlands games. We do not like Randy Pitchford. Hey, speak for yourself. I don't <laughs> like either of them. <laughs> so now it, we're never going to get a review copy for a Borderlands game, right? <laughs> buddy, at the rate we're going, we're never getting a review copy for anything ever. <laughs> uh, it is weird because... Like, there are a lot of glaring flaws in every Borderlands game. And this one, too. Like, no doubt. But there's something just really great about these games that I really resonate with. Like, you know, when I play a game that just really blows me away, like Elden Ring, for example. Like, I talked it up to so many people. With this game, I really, really enjoyed it. But I'm not going to try and sell anyone on this. Because this game is, this is not a game with mass appeal. It's not polished enough. It's not sharp enough. It still has some grating humor in it, even if it's better than previous games. Like, I'm not going to try and convince everyone in the whole world they need to play Tiny Tina's Wonderlands. But, like, for me personally, and what I look for in video games, this was still really fun. Like, I really enjoyed this one. And I will keep playing it. And I will probably be replaying it with new characters and stuff sometime in the near future. I don't think that has been y'all's experience, so. I'll probably finish it. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely, I mean, this is me we're talking about, so there's a good chance that it won't happen, but I do want to finish it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, statistically speaking, Jackson will not finish this game. However. I have not beat a single game that we have reviewed this year. <laughs> and that's the TBM seal of quality right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm I'm excited because I beat both of the games this week. Yeah. We can guarantee, at least so far, I think one of us has beaten the game. Like, at bare minimum, one of us has always beaten the game before we, we do an episode. Not Elden Ring. That's true. Okay, never mind. What I try to shoot for is, bare minimum, I have played 60% or, like, 10 hours whichever one is more and i think i've done at least that in every game except for elden ring because that one is just a mammoth of a game we've talked more than enough about tiny tina's wonderlands that's not one but two game reviews folks so i think that that means all it's left to do is pull the plug jackson what else have you been into? Well, these last two weeks. So, in in the notes <laughs> for this episode, I'd put uh, a few different musical artists I've been listening to recently because I just I haven't really been doing anything other than playing games for this podcast. Thing is, I don't really know how to talk about music. <laughs> so basically, um, all I have to say is, I got bored of just listening to my main playlist. So I've just been, uh, instead, listening to a bunch of artists that I like that I've listened to way too much of already. Uh, that includes Harry Styles, 21 Pilots, Lord Huron, Cage the Elephant. And that's basically how I've been spending the last two weeks. Yeah, that's right, guys. I'm a teenager. So I just want to recount Jackson's pulling the plug where he said he <laughs> listened to some people that made music but offered no editorializing at all. All right, glad we got through that. Um, I watched uh, Blade Runner 2049 finally because I'm a really big fan of Blade Runner. 
It was pretty Wait, good. you hadn't seen the new one before? I had not seen 2049. I saw it for the first time Friday. I could have sworn we've talked about 2049 before. <laughs> Never um, mind. No, I've seen the original. Or I, I still haven't seen like theatrical cut of the original. I've seen the, the final cut like three or four times of Blade Runner. And I love that movie. I think it's really cool and it explores a lot of really interesting ideas. I don't want to get into that because I'm not a philosopher or even a film buff really <laughs> but you are someone that did an episode of a podcast about the matrix so yeah. i'd say you're pretty dang qualified <laughs> uh blade runner 2049 was pretty good like i thought that the action scenes in it were really cool i thought like it really set like a really nice atmosphere the whole time it was kind of cool having you know the, the central mystery throughout the movie and kind of getting to explore that mystery along with the main character I thought that, I don't want to get into too many spoilers, but, like, the main character's history was really cool, and, like, kind of how they tied in back with the original Blade Runner was really interesting. I feel like a lot of the things I would want to talk about get into spoilers, and I I would just rather recommend people go watch Blade Runner 2049, but, yeah, incredible film. Uh, I do have to say, a lot of the things that are, I guess, implied or are very understated in the original Blade Runner, are very in-your-face in this movie. A a big question in Blade Runner is, like, are... Do robots dream of electric sheep? Yeah, it's like, what's the real difference between the real humans and the replicants, you know, robot humans designed to basically be slaves for humans in that universe? I'm sorry, I said that wrong. It's do androids dream of electric sheep. I apologize to Philip K. Dick and his entire family. It feels like instead of just asking that question in this movie, it very blatantly like this hits you over the head. A lot of what made Blade Runner really interesting was the things that are left unsaid. And this movie spends a lot of time saying those things. <laughs> but it's still good in its own right. And I really enjoyed it. And I would, I would recommend it if you really liked Blade Runner. But that's that's about it for me. It was also the first movie that I saw uh, Anna de Armas in, and she's one of my favorites. Yeah, she is really good in the movie. And Ryan Gosling's really good in the movie. I was surprised uh, by how little Jared Leto and Harrison Ford are in the movie. <laughs> they were all over the marketing. Yeah. And they maybe have a combined like 30 minutes of screen time in a two and a half hour movie, which Ryan Gosling probably has like two hours of screen time. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's it for me. How about, what have you been up to, Jordan? Kept up with the news in the gaming world at all, you'd know that Fortnite finally fixed its crap. <laughs> with the start of Fortnite Chapter 3, Season one. 2? Oh, this is Season 1? No, Season 2, you're right. Sorry. Season 2. Chapter 3, Season 2, they, for the first like 10 days of the season, there was no building. And they added some new features like an overshield and sprinting and mantling to sort of speed up the game without the building aspect. And now they've decided to keep no build mode as like in one of you know two options. You can basically choose to play with or without building now as part of the servers. And um, it's pretty good. I'm, I'm a big fan of that change. Uh, I enjoy Fortnite, but I've never enjoyed the building aspect of it. <laughs> And uh, I'm, I think I'm actually worse at the game now without it somehow, but I'm definitely having more fun with it, and it's easier just to, like, 
drop in, knock out some missions, kill some guys. You know, it's just a it's a more pleasant experience this way. You know, it's actually kind of interesting because I've also realized that I'm worse when buildings disabled. And I think yeah. it's because the people that are all right at both parts of the game are, you know, like buildings gone. So if someone is all right at building and shooting, they're only focusing on shooting now. Yeah. So they take me out pretty quick. Whereas like when building was still in the game or when you're playing the mode that has building, like sometimes you'll run into somebody and what they should do is shoot you and kill you. But what they do instead is build a wall. Now they don't have that wall option, so they immediately start shooting at you. Yeah. It, it feels more aggressive now, which is good, even if it means I die more often. Overall, it's been pretty cool. This season, it didn't have as much front-loaded content as last season did, which is kind of a bummer. And I think that's why I was sort of stuck with last season for more than just, you know, the first couple of weeks. But I'm still liking it, and, you know, there's there's some cool stuff coming with, like, there's going to be a Prowler event, and Doctor Strange is at the end of the the Battle Pass, which is cool. So, you know, it, it still has all the same things that Fortnite always has. Just always, you know, had the building, and now that's an option to get rid of, which I'm a fan of. So, I don't know that this is necessarily going to be, like, that much of a game changer, where people are going to, that have hated Fortnite, are going to finally enjoy it. But I do think that, you know, there is more here to take in than there was when like the building mode was all there was so if you haven't played Fortnite in a while now might be the time to check it out but i think that just about does it for another episode of the totally biased media podcast if you would like to get in touch with us there are several ways you can do that first and foremost you can reach out to us on twitter at tbmcast you can find us on instagram at totally biased media you can send an email to totallybiasedmedia at gmail.com. We stream on Twitch at least every other week. That's twitch.tv slash totallybiasedmedia. However you want to engage with us on whatever social media platform, in whatever way, we will get back to you however we reasonably can because we want to hear from you. We want to hear your reviews for things. We want to hear your suggestions for the show. Anything and everything you want to tell us, we're, we're happy to hear it. For the Totally Biased Media Podcast, I'm Jordan Walkup. I'm Jason Simmons. And I'm Jackson Walkup. You just felt the bias. Thank you, everybody. Goodbye. <laughs>